0: And three hundred and sixty-five day returns.
1: Hello, it's Matt McLaughlin from Living History here. Before we get started on this week's podcast, some really exciting news for all our UK listeners. Now that the borders between France and Britain have opened up, we've launched a range of tours. We've launched Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours in the UK. So now if you're in the UK, you can travel to France you can tour those battlefields of the Western Front where men fought and died during the Great War. So we've got great tours. We've got weekends that explore all the battlefields, a special tour for Remembrance Day. There's a whole range of great group and private tours there available now for you to travel on. So they're all escorted by Pete Smith, who you would know from our Battle Walks podcast. He's an absolute expert. He lives on the battlefields of the Somme, and he knows this better than anyone else. He's the perfect person to travel the battlefields with. They're going to be a great range of tours. I'm really excited. So jump on our website, check them out, book them now. It's battlewalks.co.uk and you can book those tours today. A Living History production.
2: I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History History Podcast. Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm Peter Hart, and I'm I'm with uh, Gary Bain, and uh, we've got a, we've got a bit of a miserable uh, podcast today. Uh, the uh, one that uh, casts you uh, it's not as cheerful as as we'd want, but uh, it's part of the story of the uh, the Royal Norfolk, Second Royal Norfolk, and it has to be dealt with. And we're doing the uh, the, the 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 story of the massacre at La Parody in. Uh, 1940. Uh, so, um rather afraid... unfortunate name, isn't it, really? Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so where are we? Well, uh, they'd they'd already they'd already been through a lot, hadn't they? By the time they got to La Parade in uh, in late May 1940. What what are, what are the we we've done it in the podcast? Just summarise it briefly for us, uh, Gary.
3: Well, it, during the Phoney War, the, everything had been calm as they were on the Franco... all quiet on
2: the Western Front. Yeah, plan. they
3: were on the Franco-Belgian border with the Fourth Brigade. Which... What's that? It was the Second Norfolks, the First Eighth Lancashire Fusiliers, and the First Royal Scots of, of the uh, Second Division. So
2: that's uh, that, uh, yeah, that, right, yep.
3: Then the Germans, being the Germans, uh, they uh, they launched a massive offensive on the tenth of May, uh, which triggered the real fighting.
2: Yeah, real, sc- uh, and it's pretty bad. Then they moved forward uh, to into Belgium to the to the River Dial line, uh, but that, that that's not held, they, and we've got, we've dealt with all this. They retreat. Uh, Roads packed with refugees, Stukas diving down, uh, and then they take up positions on the Escal Canal, uh, which I don't think either of us know how to pronounce, where uh, they, they fought a big rearguard action that we went through on the 21st of, of May. Oh, the only thing that stinks in my mind is uh, that officer having a bit of a hunt. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's typical. What do you remember about the action of the 21st? Oh, I remember. Peter Barclay uh, hunting, but there you go. Um, they then are ordered back further and they take up uh, defensive positions along the Labasse Canal uh, f- facing the, uh, well, the swirling German panzers that are swirling around. Now, what's, what to, uh, we're great war historians, if we're anything, a sort of historian. What's uh, unusual about the positions they take up? Well, in, in this
3: case, the North are actually facing to the west, which is the, the reverse of the positions taken up by the BAF facing the uh, Albers Ridge during the Great War.
2: So their fathers were pointing in the other direction. Yeah,
3: almost <laughs> back-to-back, one could say.
2: You're right. Now, the 2nd Division is uh, was ordered to screen the retreat of the BEF. Uh, uh, so the BEF are falling back on Dunkirk. So this is an important job the 2nd Division's given. And 6th uh, Brigade uh, were, were responsible for the St. Van ropec sector and the Norfolks and the rest of 4th Brigade, these are our heroes are in, uh, in the centre uh, they, they, they hold the canal from beyond Batoon while the 5th uh, Brigade, they're in the centre of the 2nd Division part and the 5th Brigade extend the lines to La Basse, that may not make any sense what, whatsoever but we'll put maps up and things. Uh, they're buying time so this is uh, exchanging lives for time.
3: Yeah and this is so the B F can escape back to Bangkok isn't it? Yeah.
2: Now the uh, um, what state were the Norfolks in when they got to La Parody?
3: Well, there, there's there's total uh, confusion, uh, exhaustion. It's I mean this is a fighting retreat, and it's beginning to to take uh, a toll on them. So people. tired. We're very tired. There's disorganisation. Some of the units are mixed up. Companies have suffered casualties and were becoming less organised, and 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 it's just you know typical a retreat under that sort of Now,
2: one of, one of the things that happens is there's a gap develops on the canal line between A and C Company, and on 25th of May uh, 1940, the pioneer section is ordered to fill that gap. Now, that's not the job of pioneers. It's clearly they're just being put into a gap. And you're going to be Private Ernie Farrow of headqu- well, well, uh, Pioneer Platoon, headquarter company, 2nd Norfolk.
3: We were to go up onto the top of this canal bank and make sure that every round that we fired got a German We were getting short of ammunition and must try and make every round count. After we'd fired a certain amount of rounds, we got to scramble back down the bank of the canal, run along a bit, then go up top again, just to try and bluff the Germans that there was a great company of us there. We were being hard-pressed. We were being machine-gunned, mortared, shelled. We were led to believe that the German tanks were made of cardboard and plywood, but by God, we knew the difference when they started firing at us. We got our heads down very, very quickly. The most terrible thing that I've ever experienced... They were even driving their lorries into the canal and trying to drive their tanks across the lorries. But the artillery managed to keep them at bay. It was very frightening. It really showed you what war was like.
2: Now, they're they're holding, but casualties are mounting. Every time the Germans attack, because they've got artillery, they've got mortars and, of course, machine guns, rifles. The the casualties are mounting. Uh, Where are the battalion headquarters? They're back at Drury's Farm. This will crop up quite a lot, which is just outside the village of La Paradis, and it's on the right flank of the Norfolk's position, which is in the centre, as we said, of the, 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 uh, the second division line. Uh, the fighting continues, so that, that was on the 25th of May. Uh, the fighting continues on the 26th of May. Uh, and uh, the remnants of the battalion are being reorganised by the acting CO, uh, a chap called Major Ryder, uh, and uh, they're running short of officers, and they're distributing them about the company. So it's all going on. The Germans start to get across the canal they 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 can't hold the whole line, and although they 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 launch the Norfolk launch counterattacks, the situation is is blurring, isn't it? They don't know yeah. what's happening really. Yeah,
3: I mean that night there's a there's an unreal calm. That so this sells.
2: is the, the, the night of the twenty sixth. It's 27th, the night of the twenty
3: sixth, twenty seventh, and Major Ryder he he seizes the opportunity to feed his men. And Sergeant Walter Gilding, he'd been posted from the mortar platoon to act as Company Quartermaster Sergeant of the HQ Company. And you're going to be CQMS Walter Gilding's HQ Company, Second Royal Norfolk's.
2: The meal was prepared. We were told where we had to go, uh, which wasn't far anyway. I arrived at the battalion headquarters at the farm, somewhere between 9 and 10 that evening. There was very little to be seen. Major Ryder came forward and spoke to us and said that he was glad to see us and that the food could be distributed when he could get the people off the perimeter where they were out on various defensive positions. From then on we were feeding the lads as they were coming to us in dribs and drabs. We had the signalers actually in the farmhouse itself and the riflemen were out in the buildings. I can remember them being called in from their various buildings, the cow shed, the pig stars, even out in the little meadows uh, around the farm, where, wherever they had taken up a position. "'It went on like that all through the night till three o'clock in the morning. "'I was still there with the cook's wagon, "'still dishing out for the odd people that had been pulled in. "'Major Ryder came and said, "'The situation seems to be getting worse. "'I think you'd better pack up and get back to B-Echelon.' "'It was then that I started to hear what sounded like heavy vehicles.' Possibly tanks moving in the distance. Also, the first mortar bomb landed in the battalion area. He means the battalion headquarter area. Uh, it didn't seem to be very healthy to be there. So we packed up very quickly and we were clear by half past three. That's half past three in the morning of the 27th. Coming out the farm gate down the road to the main road in the village, we were mortared down that road. There must have been six or seven mortar bombs landed. I told the driver to put your foot down and get the hell out of this. Fortunately, the bombs missed us, but we had quite a bumpy ride. We raced back to the B-Echelon area, where we found everybody was packing, ready to move. The quartermaster received a a message saying that the battalion was going to be staying in their positions and were not to wait. We were not to wait. Uh, So, uh, wow. Um, Now... The storm, as he says in that account, the storm starts to break about 3.30 in the morning, the 27th of May. And there's a terrific uh, German bombardment. And then there's a a dawn attack. And you're going to be Private Arthur Abroff, who uh, was caught in a sort of, well, a Malay, really, is the, the last surviving mortar team. And, and he's trying to support B Company, what's left of B Company, and I mean what's left of B Company. And they're in the village of Petite Cornet Mallow. Uh, that may not be pronounced right. Nothing ever is by me. Uh, so let's let's hear from you, uh, Private Arthur Bruff. We set our mortar up and it was getting a bit hectic
3: round there. Lots of tanks and heavy gunfire. We were putting as much stuff down the mortar as we could as we could to get rid of our ammunition. We were trying to repulse them, but we knew it wasn't a lot of good because there were so many. The mortar must have been red hot. There were only about three of us left by that time and Platoon Sergeant Major Ireland, he got shot. We resorted to rifle fire, which was absolutely stupid, but I suppose it was instinct to try and do your job. Then we saw that it was absolutely hopeless. We chucked the bolts out of the rifle. Why you do these things... Don't ask me why, but I think it must just be instinct. That's what you were taught to do. Immobilise your rifle. Take the bolt out. Then we scattered. Tanks by the hundred were coming up. We just ran for it. What can you do when you see tanks coming at you? It was frightening, really. The mortar platoon seemed to have been isolated there. Johnny Cockrell, he was with me. We dived in a dike. We got scattered dead in our tracks because there was a shell dropped quite near us from the tanks and I could feel something in the back of my leg and Johnny Cockrell, he got a piece out of his knee, pretty bad. I looked after him as much as I could, just a field dressing. Mine was just a superficial cut, two or three cuts on the back of my leg and a lot of shrapnel splinters. We were in this dike and all of a sudden the tanks were right on top of us and the next thing we saw was a German officer standing there telling us
2: the war is over Tommy. Yeah, that's. Uh, I like that quote. Uh, and people who don't like oral history say there weren't hundreds of tanks. No but that's what it felt like to him and sometimes that's important don't you feel to to get i mean that's he looked up and there's andrews t- yeah that's his perspective and that's what he felt yeah. and um and i think that gets it across perfectly that the, the sheer shock and all of it. that's a, a a great quote by arthur um now the situation's really bad by this time and the remaining headquarters signalers uh they're sent out to join the riflemen uh, defending the immediate perimeter of Drury's farm because the the German armour has got through. They, they've got through at the Le Pat, uh, Petit Cornet, Mallow sector. They seem to have got through elsewhere. And uh, I'm going to be, who am I going to be? You're going to be Private Robert Brown, once more of HU Company, 2nd Norfolk. Eventually, the CO, Major Ryder, ordered all surplus personnel out, personnel out to the defence of battalion headquarters. Because we should have to make a defence on our own. So, I handed over the switchboard to the wireless operator who was on the brigade radio. I went out then and the adjutant, Captain Long, told me to go forward to a row of trees towards the front. If I saw any Germans coming between the companies and us, I was to let him know. I was there for some time and no sign of anybody, so I withdrew about 100 yards or so to a farm building. (laughs) <laughs> sensible lad uh, <laughs> there, there was regimental police Lance Corporal in there and between the two of us we kept watch until he happened to look back towards the German headquarters along the road and there was a German motorcycle combination with a machine gun mounted on it coming from behind us we fired and stopped the combination coming through
3: yeah he looked back towards his own battalion headquarters not the German one yeah sorry um, and, and that's where he saw the, the German motorcycle, so, clearly, so, they were, so they were clearly behind them.
2: They're, they're, they, it's a really confused, mishmash situation. It? Yeah, so it's obvious at that point that the
3: Germans have broken through and that they're actually looking in the wrong direction. And Private Robert
2: Brown goes on to say, We had to get back to battalion headquarters and let them know they were round behind us. The two of us dashed across the road as quickly as possible, crawled along the ditch to the farm and gave the information that we had. I then took up a position in the barn. We knocked holes through the galvanised walls which were heavily riddled with shrapnel. The mortar bombs were dropping over the barn and behind us between the farm buildings. A friend of mine I was with, John Hagen, he said, We'll find somewhere a bit more safe. We went to the end of the barn and there was a small brick outhouse. We went in and knocked bricks out for loopholes. That's where we continued our defence for the remainder of the day. The other side of the farm was all stables, cow sheds and barn stables. The men there had done the same, knocked bricks out and made loopholes so we were more or less an all-round defence. We'd quite a lot of wounded. At first they were in a cellar under the house and then it was hit so many times with shell fire and mortar bombs that it was on fire. We had to get the wounded out and lay them in a safer place which was a very tricky position. Now the, the next bit is uh, a, 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 a very dramatic series of quotes from, uh, from Private Ernie Farrow that you're going to read. Now, as we said, he was, uh, he was in the, um, uh, the, 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 the chaps who, who, who are the pioneers and uh, he'd been used as emergency infantry, but now he's given his proper job uh, and you're going to read it. Private Ernie Farrow, uh, the pioneer section, HQ platoon, 2nd Norfolk. Corporal
3: Mason shouted to me, Strips, come on over here. I went across and he said, right, you, you and you, we've got to go and blow a bridge up. Go and find some amatol, gun cotton, whatever you can find and bring it across.
2: Classic volunteering now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you, you and you.
3: Major Ryder told Corporal Mason that his driver had been detailed to take us to this bridge. It was only a short distance away. The CO's vehicle was an old Humber car and the driver's name was Hawker. He came from King's Lynn. He opened the back of the old car and we put the gun cotton and primers in. The salt major came along and said, right, here lads, here's something to be going with. And he gave us a big tin of bluebird toffees. The quartermaster came along and he said, it's just a few rounds, three rounds of ammunition we were issued with, three rounds of ammunition to fight the German army. We thought, oh God. With this, we all piled in this old car and we were away.
2: Now, this is all a tinge of, it's a bit fast, in some ways, isn't it? And I remember, I remember, like I'm sat here opposite you, sitting, listening to this story from Ernie Farrell. I remember where he lived. It was 30 odd years ago I interviewed it, but this is an amazing story. But somehow, what stuck in his mind and what stick stuck in mine for years after is this bloody tin of bluebird toffees. <laughs> and I've always liked toffees, and, and and they they do they do feature again in the story. You're going to take up the story. There's a lot from Ernie here, and you're doing it's a lot of work for you. We were so busy trying to get this tin lid off to get these toffees out,
3: we were being shelled and machine gunned all the way. Not too badly, but the occasional shot or burst of machine gun fire. We knew that one bullet through the back of our car, and we could all be blown to pieces. Oh, with the explosives, yeah. We hoped to God that the driver would get there as quick as he could. In no time at all, the driver turned round and said, There you are, lads. There's the bridge coming up. We all looked up. The lid was still on the toffee. We still hadn't got that off. This happened in seconds, not minutes. We could see the bridge in front of us, and directly on our left-hand side was a big house. To uh, To our right was the canal. "'At the very instant that he spoke, "'a machine gun opened up "'and the whole top of this old car was riddled by bullets, "'but not one of us was touched. "'We were still all alive, not even a scratch. "'We didn't wait for the second burst. "'We dived out because the Germans were firing from this house. "'There was no point in us trying to get to the bridge "'because they were already over it. "'We were straight into the canal.' The driver, he was trying to turn his vehicle round to get back to headquarters to warn them that this bridge had already been taken. We heard this hell of an explosion and we were spattered by all the pieces of metal and whatnot as the poor old car was blown up and the driver with it. We tried to climb up to the edge of the canal bank and fire at the Germans. Somehow, we managed to get a footing. How we did, I don't know, because the canal is all mud on the bank. It was a heck of a job, but we managed to get there, and we fired our few rounds off at these Germans in the house and along the side of the bridge, hoping that every bullet would kill a German. Now I'm
2: just picturing them. I'm picturing the the, the side of the canal and the mud and it's just click, click, and, and 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 how many rounds did they have, Gary?
3: Well, three rounds apiece. So uh, uh,
2: that's not going to take long to fire three rounds. It's not at all. Anyway, you carry on the story, Ernie, about uh, uh, Gary Ernie, if you know what I mean.
3: There was no way we could get out of the canal where we were. So Corporal Mason told us, right, bolts out of your rifles, get rid of them. Out in hats, everything went off into the canal. The Germans were on both sides, so it made no difference where we went, but we felt it safer to go on over to the other side because we couldn't get out of the canal. The banks were too high to climb, and if you started to climb the banks, you'd be picked off. Luckily for us, We were all good swimmers and we swam underwater most of the way across because as soon as you came up, you were fired at. We came up on the other side under this bed of rushes. We just kept still to stop even the ripples of the water for fear that the Germans would put machine guns into where we were. The corporal said, right, stop where you are, keep your heads down. I'm going to swim down the canal and find somewhere where we can
2: climb out. And I like I like again. This is a corporal. We we joke and laugh about corporals, but here is a corporal taking charge, doing his job. Good NCO, looking after his men. He's the one who takes the initial risk. He, he goes forward anyway. Farrow, uh, they're they're incredibly exposed. I mean, to, to joke about it, they're up to their necks in it, literally and figuratively. And let's but- not forget they're unarmed. Of course. No, they're absolutely helpless. Absolutely helpless. Anyway, you're going to keep on going with the story. The three of us were very close together
3: in these rushes. They were about two foot either side of me. I was in the centre. This young fellow on my left hand side, almost touching me, his name was Porter, and he came from Beckles in Suffolk. He'd been in the army with me from the time we joined up. A very nice young fellow. And he said to me, I'm just going to have a peek over the top. At that very instant, I heard this machine gun, and I turned and looked up. This poor fellow had been shot right through the middle of his head, and the back of his head was missing. As quick as that, and he was sinking back in the water. I was trying to hold him up, which was no good, because he was already dead. This fellow on my right, his name was Reeve. Now, he was an old soldier, and he'd been out in India, and had two gold teeth put in the top of his plate. I was talking to him, telling him about poor old Porter, "'and I felt something hit my face. "'I put my hand up automatically "'and I was covered in blood. "'I thought, God! "'I looked at the blood "'and thought I'd been hit. "'I felt again, "'but I was still all there. "'When I turned round to look, "'it was this poor fellow. "'What had happened "'was they'd shot his jaw "'and his jaw had smacked me in the face. "'He was then disappearing underneath.' He means underneath the water. The, the last thing I saw of him was these two gold teeth shining in the top of his head. And for many, many weeks afterwards, whenever I opened my eyes, I could see his face with no chin and his gold teeth showing. The water around me was red with the blood, but the poor boys, they'd gone. They were at the bottom.
2: Now, I remember him telling me that. And, and it, that, that's a hot... I mean, you, you said before we did this uh, podcast, this there's this, some horrible stuff in this... Uh In this, Uh, But if you're going to tell the story of an infantry battalion, you're going to get some terrible things. Uh, uh, And uh, anyway, uh, the story goes on. Uh, Once again, you're Private Ernie Farrow. A few
3: minutes afterwards, the corporal came back. He came up at the side of me. He said, right, we can't fret about the poor boys. Let's go. We dived under and we swam. How far we swam, I've got no idea. We came up for a drop of air here and there. Eventually, he pulled on me and said, here we are and there was this ditch right beside us. The first thing I wanted to do was get out of that damn canal to get clear of it. He said, you stop where you are. That's an order. Keep your head down.
2: I'll go have a look to see if there's anything on this meadow. Now the story goes on, and uh, I, I hope I cover it in my book. I'm not sure; I can't remember. Uh, but um, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the the corporal's wounded very shortly after, just in the arm, and Farrow's uh, taken prisoner. We can't cover it all because. Uh, but but what a story that is! Um, Ernie Farrow, great great bloke, and that people who lived in. Uh, and Norwich might might remember him. Uh, some people are interested in history because he was a really well-known veteran. Now, uh, what's happening back at Drury's Farm? Well, the situation's becoming desperate uh, as one by
3: one, the perimeter defence companies, they're, they're overrun. Now, the Germans, they're clearly across the canal, in considerable strength. So it was increasingly obvious that the headquarters company was cut off and that the situation was hopeless. So it's not
2: just the odd motorcycle now. This is they're, they're completely surrounded, aren't they? They are. And Private Robert Brown goes on to say... Towards the afternoon, Major Ryder came round to us and said there was no way we could get, could get away from where we were. Ammunition was running very low and he was uh, taking opinions as to how we felt about fighting on or surrendering. Some said fight on, some said surrender. I said, well, let's carry on as we are, because the morale was very high. There was no thought of being taken prisoner or getting killed or wounded. We were just carrying on fighting, carrying on the defence and making a joke of it all, really, laughing and joking between each other. Uh, We were causing more casualties than they were causing to us. But at that time, I, I should think that they must have outnumbered us by about six to one. Eventually, he said, this is Ryder said, uh, it's no good wasting human life we, we couldn't hold them up indefinitely We'd held them up for three days on the canal Which was a very good effort And he decided that we should have to cease firing But he said if anybody thought they could get away Then we were entitled to do our own thing We wouldn't be running away from the battalion We would be trying to get away and save ourselves In other words The, 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 you know, the men in the outbuilding and the stables Went through the stable door to the field now, uh, when they first. The, 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 let's, let's just pick. Uh, I noticed a couple of things then. One, the officer shouldn't have been asking the men. It's a bit like a tour guide uh, asking uh, the punters. And the moment you ask, you're going to get two different opinions coming. Uh, uh, I remember Andy Tonga, we interviewed, uh, I think. One of the first things he told me as a tour guide is don't ask the punters. Because the ones that you don't follow their thing, they'll be cross. It, it's much better just to tell people. The second thing is uh, a theme that we'd. Explored in our book, laugh or cry about the Great War uh, and about soldiers' reactions to uh, yeah how
3: humour helps them cope with a situation which, frankly, you couldn't cope with otherwise.
2: Uh, You either laugh or cry. uh, Laugh or cry. And uh, soldiers aren't meant to cry. Uh, So. I found both of those things interesting. Now, so some of the men uh, in the outbuildings, of the stables, they they, they try and go through the stable uh, door. And uh, at first, their their, their, uh, surrender isn't accepted, is it? And who am I going to be?
3: You're going to be Private William O'Callaghan, once more HQ Company.
2: We hung a towel on the end of a rifle, and shortly afterwards, all firing ceased. We opened the door and started to file out with our hands above our heads. The first dozen men out were mown down, and then the firing ceased. So, uh, that, now that c- could be a confusion. That's that's the, the, the people. It isn't always obvious what's happening. But I just want to make it clear that could happen in normal fighting. Um, it's it's bad, but it could happen in normal fighting. Uh, I, and I want to separate this part of the story from what's going to happen in future, because things are going to get very, very raw indeed shortly afterwards.
3: Yeah, and so so the white flag, the surrender, raised uh, uh, around about seventeen fifteen, and the surrender is accepted. So after this uh, this wrinkle in the process, yeah. uh, so the so the dangerous part that seems to be over. Now the Norfolk, some of the the first Royal Scots and a few other troops that have been captured nearby, they they are marched away from Dunay Farm by uh, Number Three Company of the First Battalion Second SS. Totenkopf Regiment, under the command of Hauptsturmfuhrer Fritz Nerckling Now, oh, I'm glad you had to say
2: that. Now, uh, that, that, that doesn't sound too good. Uh, no, and that, remember that name. Yeah, right. So, I'm going to be Private William O'Callag- O'Callaghan again. I can't even say O'Callaghan. You managed that, that. Anyway, we marched down to a field about 300 yards away. Here we were searched, after we were searched, the wounded were attended to and we were lined up in threes and marched across a field. After we had been searched, some high-ranking German officer, I think he had red lapels on his greatcoat came up and spoke to the other German officers there. I cannot remember how many there were, and waved his hand, whereupon we moved off. We halted on the road about 200 yards from where we had been searched to let some vehicles pass. We started off again to march along the roads and met German troops who behaved in a very brutal manner towards us, hitting us with their rifles and pushing us about. On the march, we halted once or twice, and it is possible that one of those halts occurred just before we turned off into a gateway leading into a farm. Now, this is, this is, this is now where... This goes from being uh, uh, unfortunate and then bad behaviour, and then it spins off into murderous behaviour. And uh, they, they are approaching something called Cretan Farm. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. It's spelled C-R-E-T-O-N. And uh, you're now going to be signaller Albert Pooley uh, of A Company, 2nd Norfolks.
3: There are a hundred of us prisoners marching in column of threes. We turned off the dusty French road through a gateway and into a meadow beside the buildings of a farm. I saw, with one of the nastiest feelings I've ever had in my life, two heavy machine guns inside the meadow. They were manned and pointing at the head of our column. I felt as though an icy hand gripped my stomach. The guns began to spit fire, and even as the front men began to fall, I said fiercely, This can't be! They can't do this to us! For a few seconds, the cries and shrieks of our stricken men drowned the cracking of the guns. Men fell like grass before a scythe. The invisible blade came nearer and then swept through me. I felt a terrific searing pain in my left leg and wrist and pitched forward in a red world of tearing agony. My scream of pain mingled with the cries of my mates, but even as I fell forward into a heap of dying men, the thought stabbed my brain. If I ever get out of here, the swine who did this will pay for it.
2: Now, this is an outright massacre uh, carried out by those SS troops. Uh, in those few moments, 97 men, not all Royal Norfolks, but most of them Royal Norfolks, uh, were cut down. And, and then, and then, the SS bastards who are doing this, uh, and I, I don't apologise for using that word, they move amongst the, uh, the the 97 men. And what are they doing,
3: Gary? Well, they're administering the coup de grace. They're either administering it by bullet, or ban it to all those who look like they might still be breathing. Now, now think about this. In this horrific situation, Pooley, he's received another two bullets in his left leg. But by an, a, a supreme act of will, which frankly, I don't think I'd be capable of, he kept still, and thus he survives until the SS butchers leave the
2: scene. Right word there again. Um, bastards or butchers for...
3: Now, only one other man had survived the massacre. That's signaller William O'Callaghan, who'd been lucky enough to escape with just an arm wound beneath the the shattered corpses of his friends. This is another point. These are their friends. Yeah, uh, I and mean, he refers to them as his mates
2: in that quote. And 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 and. and... Uh, William says this. Suddenly, uh, this is going back to the... Sorry, this is his version of what Pooley's just said. Suddenly firing started. The men started falling from the front of the column. When I saw the men falling, I threw myself forward and fell into a slight depression in the ground and in falling stretched my arms out before me and sustained a slight flesh wound in the left arm. After the firing stopped, I heard my comrades shouting and shrieking in their agony. I then heard what sounded to me like the fixing of bayonets and shortly afterwards, I heard moans and shrieks from more of my comrades which sounded to me as if they were being bayoneted. I did not see this since I did not lift my head as I I was afraid of being bayoneted myself. There was also pistol and rifle shots which lasted for several minutes. The Germans left before long after having made sure that there was no sign of life. After a while two Germans came and stood behind me and I heard them talking but they left again without having done anything. Can you can you imagine what it must have been like in that pile of wounded and and well most of them dead but wounded uh, and then the, you can hear the bayoneters coming round and bayoneting and and you just playing dead and oh anyway no I, I, do you know what Pete I can't imagine no uh, that is horrific now
3: it gets worse because O'Callaghan he actually helps drag the crippled Pooley from that awful pile of bodies now. Although so both he, sa- he, sa- he, he saves him. him yeah now although both uh, are recaptured a few days later
2: now they're recaptured by what i would call normal german troops not not these utter swine's they survived the war
3: uh, and and they do get to wreak their vengeance on on Nochlein when they had the satisfaction of acting as prosecution witnesses at uh, a British military court in Hamburg in October 1948. Now, as a result, Nochlein was found guilty and hanged on the 29th of January 1949. So, Pooley, he got to keep his promise. Uh,
2: uh, and and it couldn't happen to a nicer chap. Uh, uh, and this is a, a terrible, terrible massacre. Um, there were a couple of others. We, were, we went to Umhurst uh, where was a similar thing happened. But this is, I think, one of the worst. Uh, but it's just awful. Now, uh, uh, but some people escaped. Now, I'm going, we're going back in time a bit to Private uh, Rob. I'm going to be Private Ro- Robert Brown again, HQ Company. Uh, and these are the life or death decisions you make. You go through that, you're surrendering or trying to escape. Now, he's going to try and escape, and so he doesn't go through the door of the barn to meet with the others. So he says this. Myself, John Hagen, and and another pal of mine, Bill Liffin, decided we would go out of the door onto the road, which was in the opposite direction to the others. The smoke from the burning house was going that way, so we thought we'd keep in the smoke as extra cover in the hopes of getting away. We went in a ditch at the side of the road, and in the ditch was the adjutant lying on the ground, wounded, and a medical officer was there. We attempted to go out of the ditch and cross the road, but as we did so, the German patrols were coming up from the village of La Paradis, we, and we just couldn't get over the road. They just shouted, "And zap or words to that effect. And, and that was that. They pushed and knocked us about a bit, but nothing outrageous. So just a few yards. Yeah. And, and, and this, I mean, most Germans... Will take you prisoner. They, 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 these t- SS bastards—they're they're pretty special. Uh, that because I want to make it clear that uh, normally, if you were taken prisoner by the Germans, you were taken prisoner. You weren't. This is this is a serious thing. Now, what this
3: means is that the fighting strength of the battalion. Has has almost all been either killed, wounded, captured, or massacred.
2: I think it's good to put that separate because that is special, isn't it? Yeah.
3: Now only the drivers and cooks of the uh, the B echelon escapes, and you're going to be CQMS Walter Gilding.
2: Yeah, just to fill it, finish the story. And Gilding says this: the refugee problem was really terrible then, and it was difficult to get transport along the roads. It was absolute chaos. If Stukas came down, we would dive off the lorries and get into the hedgerows or ditches and the refugees would do the same. They wouldn't be so quick on the mark as us, so we so, so we would pile back into the lorry and drive through before the refugees assembled onto the roadways again. So they'd be... Uh, They'd be first into the ditch and first out of the ditch and get get a bit of a go, but you wouldn't go far before they'd all be on the road again with their hand carts, baggage, horse and carts. Everything was there. We were on the road with a truck for two days, and things got so bad that we just had to abandon the vehicle. And I've interviewed lots of people uh, from the uh, from Gort's army time um and this is standard that they they, they, as you get nearer dunkirk you just have to leave your vehicles and in fact they had huge lorry parks as well uh sometimes it's organized sometimes they just dump them by the side of the road so now they're on foot and they're making their way to dunkirk
3: because they'd heard that the evacuation was taking place from there and uh water gilding goes on
2: we arrived at one end of the beach where all the sand dunes were we dug in we stayed there that night, which would be the 30th or 31st. We had a bird's-eye view of where, uh, from where we were. Watching all the lads lining up down to the water's edge, ready to be evacuated with gaps of 20 to 30 yards between each group, there must have been 10 of these queues. Out in the water, way out on the horizon, were naval destroyers and also civilian boats, private yachts and all types of boats. Plying in between the beach and them were, were small boats, some just rowing boats. I thought, God... They're going to take a long while to get this law off. I thought, well, there's no way we're going to hold up the whole German army. It's just a matter of time. We shall either be overrun, captured, or hopefully we're going to be evacuated. And actually, nice to say that those survivors from uh, from the Norfolk were evacuated on the early hours of the morning of 1st of June. I remember interviewing Gilding as well. He was another great character. Uh, so uh, tell me what's happened. What's, uh, we started... We started this uh, these recordings talking about the lads being recruited. Those, those lovely, remember how funny it was talking yeah. about the training. How nice that was, wasn't it? All all lads together. But it was uh,
3: always going to be different with with a, a, a an infantry battalion and regiment, uh, because you know, it they,
2: <laughs> it's more they up get close. the blood and guts of war. It's up close and personal. So how but, many of the original is, battalion? Are this left is This is special. The, the 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 massacre of the Norfolk. How are well, many are left? Only the estimates, and they're never right, are they? I I reckon only about 139 of the original battalion uh, returned from Dunkirk. Uh, Lots of them, prisoner of war, of course, taken, but
3: but... far too many of them were dead.
2: So, so what a story this is. Uh, So, is that the end of the Norfolk story? Have we finished this series of recordings, or are they reborn back in England? No, we we've not finished, so that
3: tells you something. It Peter, does, doesn't does it?
2: Because the, the the second Norfolks will rise from these gr- rather grim ashes. That,
3: well, well you yeah, just think about the date. You know, th- this is not the end of the war. We've yeah. got to carry on, and they do.
2: Well, uh, thanks for joining me, and uh, it you can't say it's been a pleasure. This one, can we?
3: No, but it was very moving, Pete. And I think uh, you know it's important that you you understand and get you know oral history providing you something that you can't get from from any other sort of uh, uh, history that's eyewitness reports as they saw it as they felt their emotions uh you made the point about you know hundreds of Germans attacks but that's what he felt and i think you don't get you don't get stories like you that.
2: don't get bluebird toffees in, uh, in 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 written accounts no
3: no. I, no I don't i don't know if they ever got the lid off
2: no but i'll tell you something i'll i'll never forget those two gold teeth and the uh, and the jawbone uh, and perhaps uh, let's leave it at that. Cheers, Pete. Cheers.